Welcome to the 447th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome physicians Carla Kearns and Emily Hansen to discuss their lives on the front lines of medicine in the pandemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and also on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch or follow on Twitter at US of Disaster. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. Please do help spread the word about COVID Calls and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of March 3rd, 2022, 5,982,141 people around the world have lost their lives to COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is John R. Sr., physician, professor, and award-winning scientist, dies at age 94. This was written by Gary Miles and appeared February 24, 2022 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. John R. Sr., age 94, of Marion Station, Pennsylvania, a former clinical professor of medicine, at the University of Pennsylvania, senior attending physician and director of the Gastrointestinal Research Lab at Philadelphia General Hospital, and the associate director of science for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, died on January 25th of complications from COVID at Waverly Heights Retirement Community in Gladwin, Pennsylvania. Specializing in hepatology and gastroenterology, Dr. Senior served in a variety of roles over his 65-year career. He was also director of the Clinical Research Center at Graduate Hospital, vice president for clinical affairs at the Squibb Sterling Winthrop Research Institute, and a consultant to pharmaceutical companies in Europe, Japan, and North America. In the 1970s, he and colleagues conducted groundbreaking research that improved the safety of blood transfusions, and Philadelphia General Hospital, now closed, was the first hospital in the world to screen for an antigen that caused post-transfusion hepatitis. At the FDA from 1995 to 2019, Dr. Sr. worked in the Office of Drug Safety and was, among other actions, instrumental in creating guidelines in 2009 for the safe treatment of liver disease. He received an FDA award for helping to create digital software that improved clinical assessments of liver ailments and publicized meetings by scientists and others so effectively that came to be known as the John Sr. Meetings. He was always seeking and formulating new ideas, his family said in a tribute. Colleagues wrote in a tribute that it's hard to overestimate the impact of his work at the FDA and that he's left a long-lasting legacy in improving the safety of new medications. He was president in 1974 of the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease and in 2017 received its Distinguished Service Award. In the 2017 online article, Dr. Sr. wrote of his tenure as president and a member of the governing board, others may judge the wisdom of the three transformative projects undertaken in the mid to late 1970s, he wrote. They appear to have been very successful. 
Born July 17, 1927, Dr. Sr. was raised in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. He graduated as president of his class at Central High School in 1945, earned a bachelor's degree in physics at Penn State, and graduated in 1954 from University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He enlisted in the Naval Reserve after high school, served for a year in the Naval Air Transport Service in the Pacific, and later rose to the rank of two-star rear admiral. He specialized in submarine medicine, was a flag officer for seven years, and retired in 1984. Dr. Sr. completed his internship, residency, and a clinical fellowship at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He spent three years as a research fellow at Mass General Hospital at Harvard and joined the faculty at Penn in 1962. He married Sarah Spedden in 1952, and they had son John and daughters Laura and Lisa. Away from his work, Dr. Sr. ran track and field as a young man and set swimming records at Penn State. Later, he played tennis and squash, studied piano, liked classical music, puzzles, and board games. And he was an avid photographer, drew in sketchbooks and kept journals. He mentored his children and grandchildren in math and served for 20 years as a summertime resident doctor at the Mohonk Mountain House Resort in upstate New York. He wanted to stay active as long as he was able to make meaningful contributions, said his son. He was still working full-time from his assisted living home. In addition to his wife and children, Dr. Sr. survived by six grandchildren, five great-grandchildren and other relatives, two brothers died earlier. The obituary of John R. Sr., a physician who died January 25th, 2022, of complications from COVID. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guests to you. Dr. Carla Kearns is returning to COVID calls. She is Assistant Professor of Medical Ethics and Internal Medicine at the University of Kansas in Kansas City. She has published in the History, Sociology, and Ethics of Medicine and has been treating patients the past two years through the COVID-19 pandemic, both those with COVID and those whose care looks very different because of it. She's joined by my second guest, Dr. Emily Hansen. Emily is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Kansas Medical Center in the Palliative Medicine Division. She received her medical degree from the Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences. Further training included completing her family medicine residency at Research Medical Center and Palliative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Her interests include LGBTQ plus disparities in healthcare, art therapy, educational development, and teaching in the setting of palliative medicine. Emily Hansen and Carla Kearns, thanks for joining me on COVID calls today. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and get an update on what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Carla, let me start with you on that. Yeah, so we are in Kansas City. Um, for those who don't know our city, we are split by the state line between Kansas and Missouri. Um, so some people, when the Chiefs win games, forget or are not sure which state we're in. Um, but um, so we're right in the heartland of the country in a metro area of almost half a million surrounded by um, 
rural states and rural communities. Um, and so our hospital serves a lot of both urban patients and rural patients, some who come very long distances to see us. Um, I pulled up the county numbers for our um, uh, for COVID for us, and I just it's really stunning. So, <clears throat> um, in terms of tests um, and cases, we are down to about twelve cases a day being diagnosed in Wyandotte County, and um, at our peak on January fourteenth, it was six hundred and seventy-five. Um, our previous peak in the pandemic was 154. So we more than quadrupled our Delta peak when we hit Omicron. Um, our hospital um, today uh, is reporting 105 patients with COVID, um, 42 within the first 10 days, so still considered actively infected, and then 63 who are recovering. And recovering can take quite a long time. Four to six weeks is not at all unusual and much longer is, um, is common. Um, I pulled up our numbers from a month ago um, just for comparison. So we had 213 inpatients on January 31st, uh, 98 active and 15, 115 recovering. So we are down 80% um, in cases, but only 50% in hospitalizations and mm -hmm. only about uh, 25 to 30% in deaths because those are lagging indicators. Um, but we have seen a dramatic improvement in the last two months, as has most of the United States. Thank you for situating us there, Carla, and, and giving us that that data um, and following the Omicron wave. I've been talking with people who telling a similar story in the United States. I'm in South Korea, where the worst of the pandemic has been in the last two months as Omicron wave. And it looks like we may have just crested and I'm hedging many, many different ways here. And I think everybody post Delta in, in, in Omicron has had that sort of sense of right on the edge of our seat before we say anything about where we are with it. Emily, let me bring you in. And I wanted to ask you, I've been asking guests if they would share a personal memory of this pandemic time. And so it's kind of an impossible question, I realize, but do you mind sharing something with us that really stands in for you for this time? Yeah, I mean, the the number of things I could bring up are probably endless. But though, the one thing that I think brings up to mind when I first heard that question was really when I started, so I started at the University of Kansas in August, and I was on my training week, and the surge just happened with Delta just kind of went really high. And so in the half, the middle half of my training week, they switched me all a sense to, to COVID. And so I was on the ground really learning how to have these difficult conversations really, really fast as a new attending. And I think that was a really transformative time for me. Um, and why I think it's so permeating in my memory is that it, it really showed me of kind of the resilience that I could have during that time being thrown into that situation. For people who might not be as familiar, can you tell us what, what does palliative care include? Yeah, so palliative medicine includes the care of basically anybody who is dealing with a difficult illness, and it can happen when they are first diagnosed, it can happen in the middle, it can happen at the end. And so really 
where this has been really impactful with our COVID patients is that when the team recognizes that there is someone grappling with a serious illness such as COVID-19 and the family needs extra support, they've asked us to kind of get involved. And Mm. luckily I have been very honored to be standing in a sense on the shoulders of giants who came before me, who created the COVID team on the palliative service in which they really adjusted pretty well to the pandemic and were really shoulder to shoulder with the ICU doctors and trying to create the service to try to help these families when they're trying to cope with understanding what their loved one is going through when they can't talk to them in the ICU. Let me just follow up on that. So you joined that team August of 2021. So so they had already been, by that point, treating COVID patients for 18 months. But other physicians I've talked to really describe the Delta wave as a different pandemic. Yeah. Do you want to speak about that, Dr. Kearns? So I just want to point out, you were also caring for patients, just not as the attending physician leading the team, but you were on these teams through the previous year. So you did see Mm. that transition as well. I did see that transition. I, so when I went from being a fellow twin attending, that was in the, the August month, but prior to that whole year, I had been kind of off and on service. And I think it felt I, I can't speak from being an attending from that year to that year, because I think for me, when I became an attending in August, it felt all different, but mm. it felt all intense. And from what I could experience during that Delta wave, what I felt was different and what I heard from the nurses that was different was that the the dialogue and the communication between the community and the healthcare was very, very different. We went from being kind of the heroes to a different type of entity for different people. And that was, I think, a struggle being a new attending, dealing with, you know, imposter syndrome and being a young female in medicine. And, you know, when I had been in my fellowship and residency years from the previous surges, we were the heroes and people would thank me. And, you know, it would be a much different conversation than, when I was in the Delta Delta wave as a new physician. Thank you for sharing that. I think we're gonna come back to to the sort of two phases of the pandemic, I think, to talk about, you know, maybe why families were reacting differently. And I suppose there must be a political aspect of that as well that yeah. we might wanna to, wanna to draw in. Carla, let me bring you in and I just wanted to I just wanted to note that you were a guest on January 18th, 2021. And at that time, um, there are not 398,307 deaths reported. The mortality statistics are not without their problems, but it is, a, it is a yardstick to measure against where we are now. And you shared some, you know, some of the personal struggles in your family at that time, a death in the family. And I wanna just check in and see how your family's doing. Yeah, thank you. So um, my father-in-law died of COVID in April of 2020, and my uncle died of cancer in June of 2020, and we were not able to be a bedside for either one of them, um, which uh, was really hard. Um, We've since um, been able to get together as a family. 
Um, but this Christmas was really, we didn't get together at all last year at Christmas because it was too dangerous. And so this Thanksgiving and Christmas was the first holiday season with the empty seat at the table. Um, and that was challenging. Um, but uh, we haven't lost anyone else since. That was my goal, one of my goals for last year. One of my other goals was um, was that I would get promoted, which I have since I was on before. So, um, so I'm now associate professor. Um, Congratulations. But I, thank you. I would say that there's been three waves of the pandemic. Um, and I would put it not the not the peaks on the on the graph. I would say that the period through the end of 2020 um, is the first era when we had not enough PPE and no vaccines. And then there was a lot of hope in the um, spring of 2021 as we were able to vaccinate more and more people. Um, and our community has um, a vaccine uptake rate that's similar to the country as a whole, um, but certainly less than um, the coasts. And so July 4th, um, Springfield, Missouri started to see a dramatic rise in COVID cases. And I remember because I tweeted about it and a lot of um, and there was a there was a lot of work done by our colleagues in Springfield. They're about two and a half hours drive from us. Hmm. Um, but they were at that time the epicenter for Delta for the country. Um, and then it it broke over everywhere else over the following month or so. Um, and they they were afraid they were going to run out of ventilators. They were afraid they were going to um, need uh, tent hospitals. And when they asked the governor for those things, he said no. Um, and so that felt really different than a year before when New York needed those things. And the answer was, tell us what you need. Um, so the, the politics of it did change. Um, and we saw that in Missouri, where our governor is um, is a Republican and has um, has taken more of the hands-off approach. Um, the governor of Kansas um, was a Republican before the last election, but we um, we elected a Democrat in 2020. And so we've had more COVID um, supports, but the legislatures in both states um, are largely Republican and have wanted to open up the economy um, even if it cost us lives. Um, and so that our, our patients and community reflect that, um, that divide. Some of our patients and families um, are very interested in taking precautions and others are very angry about them. Um, and you see that in the school boards and you see it and you see it in our waiting rooms. Um, I have only cared for a couple of patients and families who were really angry at us and accusing us of having misdiagnosed them because nobody dies of COVID. So they can't possibly have COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but it is something that we did see here. Um, and then I think Omicron is a totally different animal um, because, again, we saw this dramatic rapid peak and it wasn't even that it wasn't even just the the cases rising and the hospitalizations rising it's that we at our peak in um in the uh about january 9th had 20 percent of our staff out for covid mm -hmm. um and so our hospital capacity our ability to staff our 
our beds dropped because um, you can't send sick doctors and nurses to take care of anyone. Um, and we did a lot of telemedicine because the doctors and nurses were sick at home, but could do telemedicine, but couldn't go see patients in person in order to try to support the staff who were not sick and caring for the patients at bedside. So I think I, I had three different experiences. Emily, does that fit for you or do you feel like I'm missing one? No, that fits for me. And I think where I was really shocked by the pandemic too is when I was in training at Research Medical Center in Kansas City because that's when the first wave hit. And that felt, it was it was terrifying. There wasn't enough PPE. Um, and then I remember walking through the ICU and just seeing like signs indicating things and red and orange across the ICU. And it was just such an eerie, isolating experience that I think that one sticks out to me, what you said about Omicron and then also, you know, Delta, it all has felt like its own flavor of struggles and just conflict and confusion. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to physicians Emily Hansen and Carla Kearns today about their experiences in treating patients in the middle of this pandemic. Emily, let me stay with you and the vantage point you had as a new member of the team in that earlier period. And I guess you don't have anything to compare it to, but I'm sort of curious how you um, how you think about it, you know, the, the sort of grace period or learning period, which I guess every, every type of expertise has, they maybe don't give you as much leeway and in medicine than in other, uh, you know, medicine and airline pilots maybe don't get a lot of, of extra space <laughs> to navigate. In academia, we give people a lot of extra space. But I'm curious about how you, you know, how you did manage to, to learn at that speed. Because it seems like there would be no, there would be no time to take a physician aside and ask for further explanation or to just have some time to yourself to process what's going on. The way you've described the the pace of things is so grueling, but it's, it would seem to be extra grueling for somebody who's learning. Yes, it was. And I think the, you know, when you're in the job and you're just getting your feet on the ground, your boots kind of moving, you just keep grinding. And there was, there was a lot of points where I was just working really, really long hours. Like I show up and I wouldn't leave till like nine thirty, and that's just how my days went when they're normally supposed to end at six. And I would just always try to remind myself that I'm here for the patients and I'm here to learn. And there definitely was a lot of times where you're just running and trying to stay centered and trying to just get through the day and get the information across that you need to, to families while you're kind of guiding them through what COVID looks like and what this disease process does. Cause that's often what we do in palliative medicine. As I say, we're, we're here shoulder by shoulder through this process, good or bad. And there was probably not a lot of processing during the day. There'd be a lot of processing at night. I definitely kept my family close. I, 
I'm single and I live in an apartment by myself in Kansas City, but I would call my mom every night as I was driving home just to like check in and talk about something that wasn't COVID related just to process the day. And I kind of continued that tradition on. And so I think in a way that helped me stay centered and helped me come each day back to continue that grind and to continue to to talk to people in a fast pace because really what helped me learn the best was standing side by side with the ICU doctors that have been, you know, doing this even longer than me. And I learned so much just in that first like month of being a, an attending on the COVID wards that is just invaluable experience. Let me just follow up on one part of that, um, which is about the role of families in palliative care, because uh, one of the things I'm uh, you know, curious about is, okay, so the earlier period, you're trying to explain a disease that is a, literally a novel coronavirus. So there's the, you know, you have a risk communication and a disease communication problem to begin with. But then also, I think hospitals were moving through a, a phase, and I'd be curious to see what was happening where you were, um, of shifting rules pretty quickly about who could be in there and for how long and how that communication would work if it's going to happen, you know, not at the bedside, but with family in the hospital or then not in the hospital and then through some other means. Um, how did that work out for you? Because, and I'm asking this because I've come to understand in talking with physicians through COVID just how important the families are in in care in the hospital. It is so important. And one of my mentors, Dr. Lindsay, always tells people like seeing is believing, seeing is understanding. And so we have little iPads that we carry around the hospital. And I would essentially get the family connected to a Zoom link pretty quickly. And some of my days weren't even spent like talking about the disease, it was holding an iPad in full PPE and listening to loved ones pray and say like kind words of affirmation to their loved ones and pointing out what everything is doing and why. And I think that was invaluable for some families because if you just, like in our line of work, you need to get to know the families and understand their values and their goals before you sit down and kind of start talking about what to do as far as a medical plan, because there's multiple different things you can do, but you need to have them one, see and somewhat understand kind of what we're seeing, and then also know what their values are before you can kind of set that path. Carla, let me bring you in on this, and and you were talking, and I should have said before, um, I love talking with you because you're a historian and also a physician, so you're immediately periodizing things for us. And I appreciate that periodization is quite useful. It doesn't necessarily just track to the, to the data. Um, but that second period you were talking about, you know, that shift, which I guess sort of corresponds to the Delta wave, but seems to correspond to some other political indicators as well in 2021. I'm curious how you, how you perceived it because the media ran with very dramatic stories 
as would as you know people spitting in the faces of nurses or people screaming at at doctors was it that dramatic or were there other tells that something was different started 2021 hopeful because we were getting vaccinated and we knew that everyone else would be able to get vaccinated soon and so there was this real hope that that things would start to get better um and and then the the delta wave crests in the summer and there's you start to get the screaming about opening schools and in between we had um we had rising vaccination rates but not as not as fast and not as high as we had hoped. But I, I would say that we were very hopeful right through April, May. Um, Mid-April is when everyone in the state of Missouri was allowed to get a vaccine. Um, I know because my husband was not in any of the categories that could get it before then. So it was, uh, it was April 19th. Um, and it it's sometime after that when vaccination did not crest as high as we had hoped and people started to really get frustrated with constraints on the economy. Both folks who'd been vaccinated who said, I thought when I got vaccinated that my life would go back to normal and the folks who didn't want to be vaccinated who, um, who were also pushing. So everyone starts pushing for normality. And of course um, the CDC in, um, in May announces that we can all take off our masks and then realizes in July that actually maybe that wasn't a good idea. So there, there's a lot of transitions in that period. But, um, but I wanna go back to what, um, what uh, Emily was saying about um, the iPads, because this is one of the really critical things about how palliative care in COVID was different. So in March of 2020, when we shut everything down, when cases were not that high in our part of the country, we were basically watching what was happening in New York. But our hospital dropped our census 30%, closed all the ORs, did all the things um, that everyone was doing nationwide, even though maybe our community numbers didn't justify that. So we had a little time on our hands to think about what we should do. At the same time, we were seeing cases and we figured out very quickly that for COVID, they broke down into the folks who had very serious chronic illnesses and, and who were elderly, whose chances of survival were fairly low. And they looked to us like somewhat like the typical patients we see, patients in the ICU, patients with end-stage heart failure, patients with end-stage cancer, folks who everybody's sort of slowly coming to terms with the fact that they are not going to make it. And, but COVID brought us an entirely different population of relatively young, healthy people who were suddenly deathly ill. And they reminded us, and we talked about it this way, the way to handle these families is like our trauma patients. These are folks who they hope to make it. They were fine yesterday, and now they're at the verge of death. They're not at the right stage of life to be dying. They, um, they and their families are completely surprised by what's happening. And so we had a base of knowledge from taking care of trauma patients that we applied very quickly to COVID. But at the same time, we weren't letting anyone, COVID or non-COVID, have visitors for months on end. Mm. Um, and so um, you only got a visitor if you were dying, not of COVID, and um, if you were dying of COVID, they couldn't be in the room when they extubated you because you, they might get infected right. um, and you might get infected. And so um, 
there was a very early period when we were only allowing people dying of COVID to have one family member come. And I just remember one of our colleagues describing what it was like to explain to this family that um, the patient was going to have to choose or they were going to have to choose which daughter got to see her. It, it just, I mean, it's like Solomaic. It was really incredible. Um, and so the iPads, we didn't own iPads before this. Um, we, um, we now own eight as a team. Um, and we also didn't have cameras for most of our computers. We didn't, I mean, Zoom was not a thing. We weren't doing, we, we were struggling like everybody else to, you know, does Office Max or Target have, um, have cameras? Um, because, um, we had to learn how to use video conferencing. We had to learn how to use it in the clinical setting. We had to teach our patients and some of our older patients and some of our rural patients, they don't have broadband. I mean, we we live in the part of the country where um, where large swaths of our patients don't have broadband, um, and so then we're talking to them on the phone. So we started doing a new kind of consult we had never done before, uh, where our job was solely communication. We looked at what was happening mm-hmm. in the ICUs. Our colleagues were overwhelmed; they weren't able to give updates to to family who weren't allowed to be at bedside, and so we would literally just say, "Okay, hi." My name, we're from the palliative care team. We, um, we want to know who, who the loved ones are, who needs updates. Let's set up a, a Zoom room for your family so that you guys can have a Zoom visit every day with your loved one. Let's set up weekly or biweekly meetings with, um, with all of you so that we can know that you're going to get an update because nobody's able to be at the bedside. Um, and, and we're not going to ask you or is it time to stop? Because we know that that is not where you are and that is not where your loved one is. And so we, we followed families just for the purpose of making sure that they got updates on what was happening. Um, and we would be, um, we would be screening every COVID patient to decide, did they need that support? Just uh, remind folks, that's an extraordinary set of insights. Thank you for that. Let me remind folks, I'm talking to Dr. Carla Kearns and Dr. Emily Hansen today on COVID calls. I had a conversation a couple weeks back um, with Peter Chin Hong, who's a physician, University of California, San Francisco. And we talked about particularly this later phase. And Emily, I wanted to ask you first and Carla as well. Um, in the fall of 2021, in which the patients that they were seeing, and I wonder if this is true with you as well, were largely unvaccinated and the problem of that. The problem of that from a, from a clinical perspective, I guess, but then also a problem, and, and there's a term he introduced me to here, which is moral injury, which goes beyond like people verbally abusing or physically abusing healthcare workers, but just the knowledge that the people who were there didn't have to be there and the toll that 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 takes and so i wanted to ask you what sort of like if that resonates with you at all but then also the sort of compounding problem of communicating with patients or family members about covid at a time in which they didn't have to be there if they'd been vaccinated yeah uh lots of Lots of moral injury with that during that time period, because that was definitely during the time that I was starting as a new attending coming from a fellow from a learner standpoint, where you can kind of stay back and say, okay, my boss is going to handle this, but I'm going to learn to now being kind of the front leader and 
now having nurses and doctors being like well they were vaccinated so like you know they kind of are here now and how their question also became up if we're getting short on stuff how do we allocate you know supplies right and so there's a lot of that going around and murmurs in the hospital and luckily we didn't have to like come down to that i definitely had i think my own moral injury on that looking back i think in the moment i just kind of put my blinders up and i just kind of kept grinding because how i know that i was going on is because i definitely before that had occurred i was like watching the news keeping up to date reading all these articles and then i get to that point and i just kind of stopped i said i i know what's going on in it and i can no longer hear about what everyone else is doing and hear about that on the news because i'm living it and i also would look once to see if someone was vaccinated or not and then i was done with that because that didn't impact what I did in that moment for that family. And I did that to protect myself because I just could not keep looking and bringing up that they like, were they or were they not? Because in that moment to me, it didn't matter. They were a patient. And that is what I did to kind of protect myself during that time, because that was definitely on my mind and on a lot of my colleagues' minds at the time. I, I ask you about that also because I wonder how much that not it's really thank you for sharing that you that you did took that look one time. But I wonder in what way did that help you prepare for, for the nature of the conversation that might be following, that families might re- express regret, patients might express regret, or there might be uh, some some animosity, some anger which could be misdirected and and placed on you. Or is it just that I mean what you're describing is Okay, I know that. I'm gonna put that aside. I'm just gonna do the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely helped me prepare me for like, okay, what am I gonna say if they ask me about this? You know, what am I gonna do to try to help them out during this time? Um, and it, I feel like a lot of the families in the moment didn't bring it up too often. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was, you know, denial or shame or what. And I, I didn't really push push them on it to be honest. Um, I have a handful of people that did bring it up and expressed regret and we worked through that and we just kind of acknowledged that this is an unfortunate situation, vaccine or not, and that I would then try to educate about, you know, preparing for their own health and making sure that they were covered as well. And I used it as an educational moment for me. Ah, of course you did. I didn't, I wouldn't have thought of that. that. That's that opportunity to talk with the rest of the family, right? Yes. Yeah. And whether or not they were receptive, you know, you just, you try your best and you kind of have to leave it at that. Uh, Carla, let me ask you about the, uh, let me shift slightly to talk about um, um, people who have needed care who didn't have COVID. And particularly at various moments when maybe the hospital was less full, people were perceiving that now they could go in and get it was elective surgery or maybe people who just deferred things they needed and started to show up in the clinic. Did you see that? Absolutely. Um, So I, I, uh, after this pandemic, I would like to abolish the term elective surgery because I think it should be called scheduled surgery because it's not like plastic surgery or other kinds of things. Cancer surgeries that are scheduled ahead of time are elective. Um, heart surgeries that are scheduled ahead of time are considered elective. And so um, 
the first patient I saw whose cancer surgery had been delayed by the first wave was in the summer of, um, of 2020. And uh, he was going to die um, of what had five months earlier been most likely a curable cancer. Um, and I was angry and devastated. And, um, and, but the thing is that he and his daughter and his doctors needed us to put aside what could have been and talk about where we were and what would we, he want given where we were now, because even if we all felt that this had been curable before and it, um, and it, it wasn't now, it doesn't matter. Um, we are where we are. Um, and so we started to see um, patients who had delayed um, diagnoses of diabetes, delayed, um, uh, had had heart attacks and didn't know it um, because they had symptoms that didn't come in, um, and delayed cancer surgeries and delayed cancer treatments. Um, really within um, the, the first six months of the pandemic, and we started to see more and more of that. Last spring, um, I think our outpatient colleagues saw a lot of that in folks who were finally starting to go for colonoscopies and mammograms and um, and screening and finding uh, both new new cases of diabetes, as we're now starting to recognize in, in some folks, but also um, that a lot of their patients who had chronic illnesses, they were now out of control. It's amazing the way you describe it. It's almost like a time machine back to 1990 before uh, screenings of various different types and early stage interventions became became common. It, it's a it's just a reset in the way you're describing it. It is a bit like that. Um, and in the last wave, as more and more folks who've been vaccinated got frustrated, and as the hospitals surged with Omicron, we started to get questions about allocation of resources and whether people started asking whether we should just deny care to people who haven't been vaccinated. Um, and it wasn't a common question, but it's something that came up enough that it was in the news. And um, I did an, a couple interviews about it. And the thing is, the people who are not vaccinated when you look at the numbers, my friends are looking at the numbers and they're saying, what are these people thinking? But when you actually talk to folks, they have jobs where it's hard to get vaccinated. Um, they have, um, they don't have health insurance and they don't realize it's free. They, um, they got vaccinated, but they got sick anyway. Um, they, uh, they come from communities that have good reason not to trust the healthcare system. Um, and then they're, there is a small fraction, I would put it at 20, 25%, who are the sort of hardcore political unvaccinated who um, who didn't want to get it. And um, I have a brother-in-law in that category, and I've had several discussions with him about it, and we agree to disagree. He knows how I feel. Um, and um, But, you know, he, he cites chapter and verse, all the stuff, you know, that's circling. So um, it's there is the, that time machine quality to it. And I just worry that the next couple of years, we're, we're going to continue to uncover these um, cases of diabetes and heart disease and cancer 
that we missed because things were so busy. And I understand the people who are angry because, I mean, when we canceled elective surgeries, that included cancer surgeries. Um, and my own child needed a biopsy for um, a potential melanoma in December. And I would have been beside myself if it had been delayed. And we got lucky that he needed it at the beginning of December. It did get delayed a little bit, but not, um, mm. but it was before Omicron. Um, so I understand where people are coming from. It's, I'm, my heart breaks for everyone. Emily, let me just bring you in if you want to comment on anything related to that, that issue yeah. of now starting to see waves of patients who deferred their, their treatment. Yeah. Um, so I do palliative medicine, both in the hospital and as an outpatient as well. And you'll hear that from a lot of families that they're just frustrated that things weren't started sooner. And, you know, Dr. Kearns brought up a great comment that I always like to say in palliative medicine is we meet people where they're at. And, and that's a, a, a theme or a mantra in my head whenever I'm dealing with a family that is just struggling or, is just trying to understand about what's going on. And I think it's allowed me to have, be more compassionate during the times where people just are either not vaccinated or struggling with feeling with the whole systems against them, because it's, it kind of takes some weight off my shoulders and it just says, you know, this has happened and I just need to bear witness and I need to meet them kind of where they're at at this point in time. And that has been my own way of kind of taking on these burdens, but not accepting kind of all of their weight. And I think it's an important thing to keep in mind while we're kind of moving through these different waves. Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and we're almost out of time in our conversation with Emily Hansen and Carla Kearns. I wanted to get to one more Piece just as we're closing out here, Carla, you've been doing policy work, health policy work as well throughout this time and been involved in a committee on stand crisis standards of care. Can you say a little bit about what that's work and I'm what that's like? And I'm particularly interested in what it's like to wear these different hats in the middle of a pandemic. Did it give you some some moral authority, some gravitas to come into the into the committee room or the Zoom committee room and say, by the way, I was just in the hospital. Or does it not work like that in the middle of the pandemic? It absolutely works like that. That's um, good. You know, <laughs> uh, so, you know, when we were talking about who is in the hospital with COVID vaccinated in the uh, for most of last year, they typically, if they'd been fully vaccinated and boosted, they had some other major condition that led them to be um, sick in the hospital. It was very unusual to have somebody who was fully vaccinated, sick enough to be hospitalized, um, who who didn't have another reason for it, like they're a transplant patient or they're a cancer patient. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, I had, um, I wore a couple of, of policy hats. I'm on a um, collaborative committee between um, grassroots community partners in um, Wyandotte County, Kansas and the health department. Um, and we really have been in dialogue with our communities about what do they need? What are they seeing on the ground? What are they scared of and worried about? Um, I've also, um, I served on the, um, the committee that wrote the ventilator triage guidelines for our hospital and um, on a statewide committee for crisis standards of care. And the thing that's really struck me about those triage and crisis standards 
guidelines is that a tremendous amount of effort has gone into writing them and thinking about them and trying to make sense of what would be the fairest thing to do. And then um, sick people come to the hospital and all hell breaks loose. And um, nobody wants to triage and ration care. Nobody wants to say, well, we're going to save you and not you. And so even at the height of the pandemic in New York, that isn't what they did, even when they had guidelines. They said, we're going to do the best we can with the resources we have to take care of everyone, because that's what we do. Um, and we don't decide this person's going to die or that person's going to die. Um, and so the place that I saw it happen in practice is looking at hospital to hospital transfers. If you got to the hospital, we did our best to take care of you. Um, I've certainly, I work with the disability community as well, and the, um, we could have a whole different conversation about that because there is worry there that maybe some people didn't get the care that they should have. But, um, but that's not something I ever saw. But what I did see both in our numbers and in stories in the news all over the country is not everybody who could have benefited from ECMO got it. And a lot of people died because they needed an ICU bed and a specialty service that were not available where they were. And there was no room where they needed to go. Just from reminding folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time, although in these weeks leading up to March 16th, you can catch COVID calls just about any time, day or night, having a lot of really interesting discussions and bringing some guests back. And that's Dr. Carla Kearns. And it's really great to catch up with you a second time on COVID calls and also to have new guests like Dr. Emily Hansen. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing this. And I didn't talk to doctors mostly in the first year of the pandemic. I talked to social scientists who study doctors. Um, Carla's a unique case. Um, because you were all so busy and now to hear these stories, uh, it was the right call because, um, you, first of all, you wouldn't have had time to talk to me, but um, I'm amazed at what you went through. I just want to say thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Appreciate sharing our stories. It's a good yeah. conversation and everybody, um, please join me for my next COVID calls, which will start with Virginia Heffernan actually in just a few minutes. And we'll catch you then. Stay healthy.